can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country And the fact that it was built on blood Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. We'll you also find some links. You'll find a link there to send me a message, and you'll find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. This episode is about responsibility in its various forms. First up is a piece written by Gabrielle Blair, published at humanparts.medium.com. As a mother of six and a Mormon, I have a good understanding of arguments surrounding abortion, religious and otherwise. When I hear men discussing women's reproductive rights, I'm often left with the thought that they have zero interest in stopping abortion. If you want to prevent abortion, you need to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Men seem unable or unwilling to admit that they cause 100% of them. I realize that's a bold statement. You're likely thinking, wait, it takes two to tango. While I fully agree with you in the case of intentional pregnancies, I argue that all unwanted pregnancies are caused by the irresponsible ejaculations of men. All of them. Don't believe me? Let's start with this. A woman's egg is only fertile for about two days each month. Yes, there are exceptions because nature, but one egg, which is fertile two days each month, is the baseline. And those fertile eggs are produced for a limited number of years. This means on average women are fertile for about 24 days per year. But men are fertile 365 days a year. In fact, if you're a man who ejaculates multiple times a day, you could cause multiple pregnancies daily. In theory, a man could cause 1,000 unwanted pregnancies in just one year. While it's true that sperm gets crappier as men age, it doesn't have a fertility expiration date. Men can cause unwanted pregnancies from puberty until death. So starting with basic fertility stats and the calendar, it's easy to see that men are the issue here. But what about birth control, you might ask? If a woman can manage to figure out how to get an abortion, surely she can use birth control to avoid unwanted pregnancies, right? Great question. Modern birth control for women is possibly the most important invention of the last century. I am very grateful for it. It's also brutal. The side effects for many women include migraines, mood swings, decreased libido, depression, severe cramps, heavy bleeding, aneurysm, and that's just a small fraction of them. Discouragingly, a promising study on a new male contraceptive was canceled in large part due to, wait for it, side effects. To be clear, 
this list of side effects was about one-third as long as the known side effects for commonly used women's contraception. There's a lot to unpack in that story alone. I'll simply point out that, as a society, we really don't mind if women suffer, physically or mentally, as long as it makes things easier for men. But men, I've got good news. Even with the horrible side effects, women are amazingly very willing to use birth control. Unfortunately, it's harder to get than it should be. But that doesn't keep women from trying. Birth control options for women require a doctor's appointment, sometimes multiple doctor's appointments, and a prescription. They're not always free and often not cheap. Some are actually trying to make female birth control options more expensive by allowing insurance companies to refuse to cover them. In addition, contraceptive options for women can't easily be acquired at the last minute. In most cases, they don't work instantly. The pill requires consistent daily use and doesn't leave much room for mistakes, forgetfulness, or unexpected disruptions to daily schedules. Again, the side effects can be brutal, and not just in rare cases. Despite the hassle and side effects, I'm still grateful for birth control. Please don't take it away. But it's critical to understand that women's birth control isn't simple or easy. In contrast, let's look at birth control for men. For example, condoms. They're readily available at all hours, inexpensive, convenient, and don't require a prescription. They're effective and work on demand instantly. They don't cause aneurysms, mood swings, or debilitating cramps. Men can keep them stocked up just in case so they're always prepared. They can be easily used at the last minute. I mean, condoms are magic. So much easier than birth control options for women. As a bonus, most women are totally on board with condoms. They keep us from getting STDs. They don't lessen our pleasure during sex or prevent us from climaxing. The best part? Cleanup is so much easier. No waddling to the toilet as jizz drips down our legs. So why would there ever be unwanted pregnancies? Why don't men just use condoms every time they have sex? Seems so simple, right? Oh, I remember. Men don't love condoms. In fact, it's very, very common for men to pressure women to have sex without a condom. It's also not unheard of for men to remove the condom during sex without the woman's permission or knowledge. Pro tip, that's assault. Why would men want to have sex without a condom? Because for the precious minutes when they're penetrating their partner, not wearing a condom gives them more pleasure. So, that would mean some men are willing to risk getting a woman pregnant, which means literally risking her life, her health, her social status, her relationships, and her career, so they can experience a few minutes of slightly increased pleasure. Is this for real? Yes. Yes, it is. Imagine a pleasure scale, with pain being at zero and going down into the negatives. A good back scratch falls at five, in an orgasm without a condom is a 10. Where would sex with a condom fall? A seven or an eight? So it's not that sex with a condom is not pleasurable, it's just not as pleasurable. An eight instead of a 10. Let me emphasize that again. Men regularly choose to put women at massive risk in order to experience a few minutes of slightly increased pleasure. For the truly condom averse, 
men who also have a non-condom always ready birth control option built right in the pullout it doesn't protect against stds it's an easy joke and it's far from perfect however it's 96 percent effective if done correctly and 78 percent effective in practice because it's often not done correctly still many men who resist wearing condoms never learn how to pull out correctly Apparently, it's slightly more pleasurable to climax inside a vagina than, say, on their partner's stomach. Once again, men are willing to risk the life, health, and well-being of women in order to experience a tiny bit more pleasure for roughly five seconds during orgasm. Think of the choice men are making here. Honestly, I'm not as mad as I should be about this, because we've trained men from birth to disassociate sex and pregnancy. We've taught them that their pleasure is of utmost importance. As a general rule, men get women pregnant by having an orgasm. Yes, there are exceptions. It's possible for sperm to show up in pre-ejaculate. But in most cases, getting a woman pregnant is a pleasurable act for men. But men can get a woman pregnant without her feeling any pleasure at all. It's even possible for a man to impregnate a woman while causing her excruciating pain, trauma, or horror. In contrast, a woman can have non-stop orgasms with or without a partner and never once get herself pregnant. A woman's orgasm has literally nothing to do with pregnancy or fertility. Her clitoris exists simply for pleasure, not for creating new humans. No matter how many orgasms she has, they won't make her pregnant. Pregnancies happen when men have an orgasm. Unwanted pregnancies happen when men orgasm irresponsibly. A woman can be the sluttiest slut in the entire world. She can love having orgasms all day and all night, and she will never find herself with an unwanted pregnancy unless a man shows up and ejaculates irresponsibly. Though our society tends to villainize female pleasure, women's enjoyment of sex does not equal unwanted pregnancy and abortion. Men's enjoyment of sex and irresponsible ejaculations do. Let's move to the topic of responsibility. Often, men don't know, don't ask, and don't think to ask if they've caused a pregnancy. There are often zero consequences for men who cause unwanted pregnancies. If the woman decides to have an abortion, the man may never even know he caused an unwanted pregnancy with his irresponsible ejaculation. If the woman decides to have the baby or put the baby up for adoption, the man may never know he caused an unwanted pregnancy with his irresponsible ejaculation either. He may never know there's now a child walking around with 50% of his DNA. If the woman does tell him he caused an unwanted pregnancy and that she's having the baby, the closest thing to a consequence for him is child support. Our current child support system is a well-known joke. Only about 61% of required payments by men are actually made, and there are little to no repercussions for skipping out. In some states, failing to pay child support doesn't even affect your credit. If a man does pay child support, it doesn't come close to what is required by a woman in the case of an unwanted pregnancy. Let's talk about abortion. When the topic comes up, men might think, abortion is horrible, women should not have abortions. Never once do they consider the man who caused the unwanted pregnancy. If we're discussing abortion law and not how to hold men accountable for irresponsible ejaculations and the unwanted pregnancies caused by them, we're wasting our time. 
shift the conversation. Stop protesting at clinics. Stop shaming women. Stop debating whether or not to overturn abortion laws. If you actually care about reducing or eliminating the number of abortions in our country, simply hold men accountable for their actions. What would that look like? A real and immediate consequence for men who cause an unwanted pregnancy. What kind of consequence would make sense? Should it be as harsh, painful, nauseating, scarring, expensive, risky, and life-altering as forcing a woman to go through a nine-month unwanted pregnancy? If you consider abortion to be murder, consider this thought experiment. Would you be on board with having a handful of men castrated to prevent 600,000 murders each year? If this argument sounds too provocative, could it be that many of us have a hard time wrapping our heads around a physical punishment for men? We seem to be more than fine with physical punishments for women. Perhaps we care more about policing women's bodies, morality, and sexuality than we do about reducing or eliminating abortions. Here's another prevention idea. All males in the U.S. could get a vasectomy when they are ready to be sexually active. Vasectomies are very safe, highly reversible, and about as invasive as a woman getting an IUD implanted. In most cases, there's some soreness afterwards for about 24 hours, but that's pretty much it for side effects. Take a moment to remember that female contraception options used by millions of women in our country and billions across the world have well-known side effects which can be brutal and severe, and yes, also include soreness. If and when a man becomes a responsible adult, finds a mate, and wants to have a baby, the vasectomy can be reversed and then redone once a childbearing stage is over. Each man can bank their sperm before the vasectomy, just in case. Don't like my ideas? That's fine. I'm sure there are better ideas, and I challenge you to suggest your own. My point is we need to stop focusing on women if we're trying to get rid of abortions. Think of abortion as the cure for an unwanted pregnancy. Stop abortions. We need to stop abortions. We need to prevent the to quote disease, meaning the unwanted pregnancy itself. And the only way to do that is by focusing on men. Because irresponsible ejaculations by men cause 100% of unwanted pregnancy. If you're a man, what would it take for you to never again ejaculate irresponsibly? A loss of money, rights, or freedoms, physical pain? Ask yourselves, what would it take for you to value the life of your sexual partner more than your own temporary pleasure or convenience. Men mostly run our government and men mostly make our laws. In theory, men could eliminate or drastically reduce abortions within months without ever touching an abortion law or even mentioning women. They simply need to hold men accountable for irresponsible ejaculations and legislate accordingly. To reduce or eliminate abortions, stop attempting to control women's bodies and sexuality because unwanted pregnancies are caused by men. And from the responsibility for unwanted pregnancy to the responsibility for global pollution, here is a piece published at truthout.org. And this is written by J.P. Sautile. The debate over the reality of climate change is over. After years of fossil fuel denialism, the inescapable fact of the human-altered climate has finally hit home for many once-skeptical Americans. In some cases, it has literally hit home. 
in various parts of the country, homes are being threatened, torched, and inundated by a barrage of climate-stoked catastrophes. Real-world experience has replaced easy-to-dismiss graphs and scientific models with failing crops, drowning livestock, escalating insurance costs, collapsing infrastructure, rising seas, and waning biodiversity. The doomsday scenarios scientists have predicted for five decades are now all too real for one in three Americans. An Ipsos poll in June of this year found that, quote, seven out of ten Americans are aware of the scientific consensus that climate change is largely caused by people. And a morning consult poll in April found that only 19% of voters said climate change is, quote, not an important threat at all. Additionally, a fulsome 60% of the voters surveyed by Morning Consult wanted the U.S. in the Paris Climate Accord, while just 22% wanted to keep the U.S. out. For all but a shrinking minority, fanciful claims that climate change is a hoax or a globalist plot have been largely foreclosed by realities on the ground. Even notable naysayers and snowball artist Senator Jim Inhofe now claims he never called climate change a hoax, despite authoring a book titled The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future. Sadly, it took successive years of deadly floods, grinding droughts, and apocalyptic wildfires to convince so many people, but here we are. The popular question has moved from, is it settled science, to what can and should be done about it? And while some might take solace in knowing that many of the oil industry's congressional stalwarts have finally acquiesced, it is cold comfort to others who see valuable time ticking away while leaders who have long accepted the reality of climate change haggle with recent converts over the appropriate steps to avoid catastrophe. For members of the recently created Conservative Climate Caucus in the House of Representatives, it's an existential struggle between elements of socialism and status quo capitalism, between the Green New Deal and market-based strategies, between regulations and unchecked economic growth, between immediate reductions in hydrocarbon use and long-term hopes for scientific breakthroughs, and between government intervention and the laissez-faire logic of adaptation. It's a debate echoed in the Senate by, quote, former climate skeptic Senator John Barrasso, a Republican from the uranium-rich Petro state of Wyoming. He switched from outright denial to tactical retreat and obfuscation. While now admitting the climate crisis is a thing, he's also said, quote, reducing the use of fossil fuels will not solve climate change, an idea that common sense and expert opinion resoundingly rejects. In a USA Today op-ed, Barrasso touted his role in a, quote, historic bipartisan environmental innovation law, referring to an agreement tucked into an energy bill that reduced hydrofluorocarbons emissions. But he also claimed President Biden's executive orders to rejoin the Paris Accord, nix the Keystone XL pipeline, and freeze new oil, gas, and coal leases on federal lands took, quote, a sledgehammer to the economies of western states without putting a dent in climate change. Then he revealed the core of the emerging, quote, debate and delay strategy with this key juxtaposition. Quote, damaging America's economy won't stop climate change. Between 2015 and 2019, carbon dioxide emissions jumped in Russia, China, and India. At the same time, U.S. emissions continue to drop as they have 
since 2007. And there it is. For Republicans ranging from supposed converts like Barrasso to meme-wielding conspiracy peddlers like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, China is the excuse to do little or nothing. To wit, the mission statement for the aforementioned Conservative Climate Caucus bluntly asserts that, quote, China is the greatest immediate obstacle to reducing world emissions. And when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC's dire sixth assessment, hit the news cycle in August, Conservative Climate Caucus ranking member Garrett Graves admitted it, quote, highlights the urgency of climate change, but said, we must ensure we approach this issue the right way. The right way for Graves means, quote, avoiding policies that rely on higher taxes, increase regulations, and ensure us being under the thumb of China. More specifically, conservatives often emphasize the U.S. must avoid being under the thumb of, quote, communist China. They stress the communist part, a label still ironically pasted on the face of a country so steeped in neoliberal capitalism, perhaps because it's only a short rhetorical leap from Beijing's, quote, reds to the, quote, socialist Green New Deal here at home. More directly, they deem it unfair to demand unilateral action by freedom-loving Americans while communist China gets away with runaway carbon emissions. Of course, it's true that China accounts for more than half the world's coal power and is the world's largest carbon dioxide emitter. It is also true that the U.S. CO2 emissions have declined over the years, while China's are now nearly twice the U.S.'s. And it's also true that, as David Holt, president of the Fossil Fueled Consumer Energy Alliance, recently wrote, China is home to 23 of the top 25 cities, quote, responsible for 52% of the planet's urban greenhouse gas emissions. But that fact doesn't magically vacate the U.S.'s responsibility for its own emissions. Nor does it obviate the fact that, as Mangabe pointed out, quote, historically, the U.S. is responsible for a quarter of the world's greenhouse gas output. That's despite being home to less than 5% of the world's population. In fact, the study Holt cited on emissions in China also noted that China's per capita output is still below wealthier countries like the U.S. and those in Europe. But for conservative climate converts looking for a way to block real regulatory efforts, the question of why should we pay the price economically when China gets away scot-free is the ultimate trump card, pun intended. When former President Donald J. Trump announced his withdrawal of the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, he claimed it was simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries. He complained that it punishes the United States, while China will be able to increase these emissions by a staggering number of years, 13, they can do whatever they want for 13 years, not us. For Trump, who often wove a narrative of betrayal rooted in the relocation of the U.S.'s consumer-driven industrial base to China, the Paris Accord was, quote, less about the climate and more about other countries gaining a financial advantage over the United States. He bemoaned that the Paris Accord is very unfair at the highest level to the United States. In post-denialism U.S., this is the main political argument against unilateral climate action. It is the, quote, unfairness doctrine. It's the idea that is patently unfair for the U.S. to absorb the economic harms that will come from unilateral disarmament on climate 
while environmentally, environmentally lax communist China hums along in a profitable carbon-spewing victory. But this is based on a fundamental fallacy, that the U.S. bears no responsibility for the millions of tons of landfill fodder produced in Chinese factories and shipped to its seemingly insatiable consumer market. The stark truth is that China's pollution is largely made in America. Simply put, corporate America has fueled much of China's carbon-belching industrial behemoth. U.S. corporations and investors exploited China's relatively few environmental regulations, along with its vast supply of cheap labor, in an effort to minimize the costs of doing their business. U.S. corporations were able to relocate their manufacturing to China, thanks in no small part to all American economic policies emphasizing maximum profit and avoidance of regulations. Those policies, in turn, globalized the supply chains that made these profitable regulatory dodges possible. Six million dollars. According to U.S. Census data, that was a trade deficit with China in 1985. It is also the launching pad for a meteoric rise. It started during the yearly renewals of its most favored nation, MFN, trade status during the Clinton years. But it skyrocketed after President George W. Bush granted China Permanent Normal Trading Relations, PNTR, meaning a free trade designation that drops trade barriers and lowers tariffs to most favored nation status in 2001. That, along with President Clinton ushering China into the World Trade Organization during the previous year, accelerated the now infamous process of outsourcing or offshoring as U.S. businesses rode the wave of globalization in search of cheap labor in poorly regulated countries with lax or non-existent environmental standards. Another term for this process is externalization. That is when a business removes or externalizes a negative cost of doing business, taking it off the balance sheet, and therefore increasing profitability. When it comes to externalizing the environmental costs of pumping out billions of dollars of consumer goods, it can also be thought of as exporting the ecological overhead to another market or country, in this case China, where the price of polluting is pennies on the dollar. And that's exactly what the U.S. business sector has done since that paltry $6 million deficit was logged in 1985. By the time Clinton was elected in 1992, the trade deficit with China was $18.3 billion. It hit $83 billion when he left office in 2001. It basically doubled during George W. Bush's first term, reaching $162 billion in 2004. It nearly doubled again by 2013, hitting $318.8 billion before hitting a high of $419 billion in 2018. But those dollar amounts only tell half the story. To visualize the way the trade deficit has externalized billions of tons of carbon production over the years, compare the following two charts. And chart one shows the budget deficit in trade with China. And chart two shows the CO2 emissions from a number of countries, including China. And China's increase in CO2 emissions pretty well mirrors the increase in the budget deficit between the U.S. 
and China trade. As these charts illustrate, there is a direct correlation between the rise of China as a corporate America's offshore factory and China's rise as the world's leading fossil fuel burning, carbon emitting nation. You can see the liftoff point after it was granted PNTR in 2001. Currently, U.S. corporations and consumers directly drive at least one-fifth of China's industrial carbon output, but that doesn't fully account for the indirect carbon-polluting oil-driven supply chain that takes oil and gas out of the ground in the Middle East and ships it to China, where it is burned for fuel and manufactured into hydrocarbon-based plastic products. Those products get shipped overseas to ports on the west and east coasts of the United States, before being trucked to retail outlets and home shoppers around the country, with CO2 produced every step of the way. Even worse, China's mass production of hydrocarbon-based plastic for the U.S. market helps sustain the global oil industry's heavily subsidized business model. China's carbon production is also indirectly subsidized by the U.S. military, which is the de facto guarantor of the international oil economy, and specifically of oil and gas shipments from U.S. partners in the Persian Gulf to China. The U.S. Navy's Bahrain-based Fifth Fleet, among other military assets, ensures the free flow of hydrocarbons into China's fossil-fueled factories. In 2020, according to the world's top exports, nearly half, 47.1%, of Chinese imported crude oil originated from nine Middle Eastern nations. With U.S. protected Saudi Arabia atop the list of China's main oil providers, the U.S. is ninth on the list. In 2020, the U.S. and its staunch allies in the United Arab Emirates and oil-rich Norway were the only countries increasing oil exports to China's carbon-generating industrial sector, while the rest saw declines. At $6.3 billion, the amount of oil the U.S. provides is overshadowed by the amount of hydrocarbon-fueled goods that flow back across the Pacific and into the U.S. economy. But that huge deficit is priceless when it comes to creating plausible deniability for U.S. politicians who can crow about the unfairness of regulating U.S. carbon emissions while China's emissions grow unchecked. Frankly, it's implausible to deny the role played by U.S. economies' appetite for a vast array of cheap products, plastic widgets, electronic components, tools, chemicals, and other goods that externalize the production of carbon emissions and, in the process, give politicians and the oil companies they represent a bogus argument for doing little or nothing to address the climate crisis. They even want to have it both ways. So conservatives say it's unfair to expect the U.S. to reduce its carbon output without an enforcement mechanism punishing China for its pollution, and it's unfair for the EU to use an enforcement mechanism, mechanism to punish nations like the U.S. that refuse to meet its higher standards. What's truly unfair is the cost being paid by low-emitting climate casualties like Madagascar and the Maldives and Honduras. Meanwhile, Fairness-obsessed but heavy, heavily oil-funded politicians of both parties haggle over incremental efforts versus market-based solutions while the manufacturing monster U.S. policy helped build takes steps aimed, as oilprice.com reported, at, quote, maintaining its domination of the renewable sector into the near future. But China's epic lead in manufacturing renewables is fraught for the same reason it was problematic to externalize manufacturing of consumer goods and industrial components. 
solar panels are being built with forced labor and battery production tainted by child labor. That China model is imprinting the future with exploitatively produced solar panels and batteries is in part a function of the United States' abdication of its outsized responsibility for the climate crisis. Ironically, the political debate about fairness mimics the process of externalization that offshored megatons of carbon pollution to China. In essence, U.S. political leaders and the corporate interests they serve seek to externalize the responsibility for creating China's carbon-belching behemoth. As they do, they are merely replacing climate denial with costly climate delay by making China the boogeyman, which justifies doing nothing at all. In addition to justifying doing nothing at all, it fits into the, the other massive narrative as our hot wars in Afghanistan and Iraq come to a close and only our largely our drone wars are continuing, but those appear marginal thanks to the um, occupied corporate media. We need a new enemy. The politicians need a new enemy. You can't run an empire without enemies because enemies are one of the primary ways to keep the subjects of your empire under control, in line, following the procedures that you lay out for their unencumbered successful lives or unsuccessful lives for that matter. As we know, the uh, <clears throat> empire, in the, in the empire, as in many economies, people don't succeed equitably. So now China is the new boogeyman, as this piece states. China is, is the growing enemy. And they're not our enemy. China, they're our, they're our competition certainly in a lot of places in a lot of areas economically they're dominant we've given that away to them with our policies over the last 40 50 years uh militarily yeah they're formidable they're one of the top 10 uh military spending countries um out there in the world and one of the few that aren't aligned with the united states most of those top 10 who of of whom their entire budgets combined don't equal the U.S. military budget. The majority of them are our allies. China, a tenuous ally, economic ally, but not a, a military ally. And therefore, the people who want to keep the American empire humming along are pointing to China again and again for various reasons as our new enemy the new risk to our empire they do pose a risk to our empire but only in the sense that they are capable militarily and they are dominant economically so the ongoing point finger pointing at china over climate change and china has to be an important uh part of the solution no doubt but the, that finger pointing just meshes perfectly well with the buildup of China as the new risk, the new enemy 
of the U.S. Empire. One of the other ways we are managing things in a very irresponsible manner are with our agricultural subsidies. And the U.N. has put out a report recently and has had a couple of different food-focused summits to look for, discuss options to improve. Here's a segment of a study put out by the UN. Current agricultural support policies are steering us away from achieving the SDGs and the goals of the Paris Agreement. But there is still time to repurpose agricultural support to drive a transformation towards healthier, more sustainable, equitable, and efficient food systems. Food systems are vital for the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. They support ending poverty, eradicating hunger, achieving food security, improving nutrition, promoting sustainable agriculture, fostering sustainable consumption and production, combating climate change, nurturing nature, and reducing inequalities. However, public support mechanisms for agriculture, aka subsidies, are not helping to improve the conditions under which food is produced. Indeed, they are actively steering us away from achieving the SDGs and the goals of the Paris Agreement. Food systems in the agriculture sector have made impressive strides in producing food to feed a growing population, reducing real food prices in many countries, improving food safety, and reducing foodborne illnesses. However, food systems are also contributing to and facing the consequences of complex global and environmental challenges, including climate change, environmental degradation, and natural resource constraints. The State of Food Security and Nutrition in the World Report in its 2021 edition indicates that the world is not on track to eradicate hunger, food insecurity, and malnutrition in all its forms by 2030. After remaining virtually unchanged for five years, the prevalence of undernourishment, POU, increased by 1.5 percentage points in 2020, reaching a level around 9.9%. In 2020, over 720 million people in the world faced hunger, and nearly one in three people in the world, 2.37 billion, did not have access to adequate food. Healthy diets were out of reach for about 3 billion people, especially the poor, in every region of the world in 2019. At the same time, population growth is resulting in an ever-increasing demand for food. These challenges have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, which risks overwhelming food systems. Government agricultural support policies are not fit for today's food systems. As this report demonstrates, the way governments around the world support agriculture is a factor in the global and environmental challenges that food systems are facing. While not accessible to all producers, agricultural producer support in particular has led some to some farming practices that are harmful to nature and health and largely focused on certain commodities, thus hindering the health, sustainability, equity, and efficiency of food systems. Against this backdrop, agricultural producer support needs to be repurposed and reformed to support a transformation of our food systems in the achievement of the SDGs. Repurposing is defi defined in this report 
as a reduction of agricultural producer support measures that are inefficient, unsustainable, and or inequitable in order to replace them with support measures that are the opposite. This means agricultural producer support is not eliminated but reconfigured. In this way, repurposing will always imply reforming. By repurposing agricultural producer support, governments can optimize scarce public resources to support food systems in ways that make them not only more efficient, but also more supportive of healthy lives, nature, and climate. This can also be an opportunity to achieve a strong economic recovery in a post-COVID-19 pandemic world. This report provides policymakers with an analysis of agricultural support globally and by country income group over time, along with a six-step guide on how to repurpose agricultural producer support and the reforms required to better support the transformation of our food systems and the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. This report provides an updated estimate of agricultural producer support in the world covering 88 countries. Support to producers makes up the lion's share of all the agricultural support and is thus the focus of this report. Between 2013 and 2018, net support to agricultural producers individually averaged almost 540 billion US dollars per year, representing around 15% of total agricultural production value. Of this, about $294 billion was provided in the form of price incentives and around $245 billion as fiscal subsidies to farmers, the majority, 70%, being tied to the production of a specific commodity. Only $110 billion was used to fund transfers to the agricultural sector collectively in the form of general services or public goods. Price incentives and fiscal subsidies are forms of support that may have significant negative implications on food systems as they incentivize production practices and behaviors that might be harmful to the health, sustainability, equity, and efficiency of food systems. Price incentives are the result of border measures, for example, import tariffs and export subsidies, that generate a gap between the domestic producer price and the border price of a specific agricultural commodity. These measures, while favoring some producers, for example of certain crops, can potentially distort food trade, production, and consumption decisions. Similarly, fiscal subsidies linked to the production of a specific commodity can lead to negative environmental outcomes, for example through overuse of agrochemicals and natural resources and the promotion of monoculture and nutritional outcomes, for example, by disproportionately fostering production of staples versus fruits and vegetables. These subsidies also drain public resources that could be invested instead in areas where returns are higher and benefits more long-lasting, thus hindering efficient and more sustainable use of often limited public funds. Support coupled to production can ultimately hamper sustainable market development trigger price shocks at a global scale, incentivize the production of emission-intensive products, or penalize the availability and affordability of more diversified and nutritious food, particularly for the poorest consumers. On the contrary, subsidies not tied to the production of a specific crop and fiscal transfers for the provision of general sector services are the least distorting measures, and less likely to increase pressures on sustainability. 
This type of support does not influence the type or volume of agricultural production, thus allowing for decisions that are more efficient. The report finds that unhealthy products like sugar and emission-intensive commodities like beef, milk, and rice receive the most support worldwide despite the potentially negative impacts on health as well as on climate change adaption and mitigation and the relative disincentives this support creates towards producing healthier and more nutritious foods, such as fruits and vegetables. The negative repercussions on the climate are particularly relevant for high- and upper-middle-income countries that consume more dairy and meat products per capita than poorer countries. In least developed countries where the production of staple foods, for example cereals, receives the highest rates of support, farmers have fewer incentives to diversify production towards more nutritious foods. The way countries support their agricultural sector varies widely according to their policy objectives and tends to change as countries develop. Price incentives and fiscal subsidies tied to production are and have been the most widely used in high-income countries, for example European Union member states. Such support accounted for over 40% of global agricultural production value in 2005, but the trend since has been mostly downward. Conversely, since the early 1990s, these distorting measures have become more prominent in some middle-income countries with notable emerging economies, for example, China, Colombia, Indonesia, Philippines, and Turkey. Price incentives and other coupled support, especially input subsidies, now account for over 10% of agricultural production value in those countries, on average. However, in other middle-income countries, for example, Argentina, Ghana, and India, rates of support to agricultural producers are still negative, as policies penalize farmers through low prices. This trend is similar to the one seen in most low-income countries, where fiscal support is minimal and the farming sector has been penalized by policies that keep food prices low to protect poor consumers. The persistently strong reliance on agricultural producer support Coupled to production clearly shows the need for commitment at country, regional, and global levels towards repurposing strategies. Price-distorting policies and subsidies tied to production decisions are still widespread, while most support worldwide is given to commodities with the biggest environmental footprint. Even if some of these policies have been gradually phased out during the last decade in some countries and regions, they seem to be experiencing a resurgence more recently. More efforts are therefore required to reduce the most distorting and environmentally or socially harmful support and to redirect resources towards investments in public goods and services for agriculture, such as research and development and infrastructure. Given the complex trade-offs with other policy areas and the interactions between policy objectives and impacts, any strategy for repurposing agricultural producer support needs to be systematically assessed. A successful repurposing strategy needs to be holistic. This involves setting the right goals, understanding causes and effects, putting in place the right conditions to successfully implement the strategy, and creating supportive investment opportunities. In order to gain wide acceptance of the proposed changes in agricultural support and of the needed reforms, communication and engagement strategy targeting stakeholders and the general public form an important part of the overall repurposing strategy. A transparent, multi-stakeholder approach is integral to the six-step repurposing process. Transparency and inclusion consultations are critical to address institutional bottlenecks and vested interests that could hinder reform and the effective implementation of the strategy.
Reforming agricultural support raises concerns about reduced incomes and food affordability and is likely to be opposed by farmers benefiting from the current system. It is therefore crucial to communicate that reforming agricultural policies is not about taking away support from farmers, but about repurposing it so that it rewards good practices rather than perpetuating practices that threaten food system stability, farmers' welfare, and the environment. A multi-stakeholder approach needs to ensure the inclusion of certain key actors, small farmholders in particular, many of whom are women, make a significant contribution to addressing food security and nutrition and promoting resilience. Furthermore, women produce most of the food consumed locally, making small farms central for poverty reduction, gender equality, and for women's empowerment in rural areas. Small farms are found to be more productive per acre than large farms, better for spurring surrounding economic growth, and better for ecosystem and biodiversity conservation. It is therefore critical to recognize the role of these actors and include them in agricultural repurposing policy processes if the shift to healthier, more sustainable, equitable, and efficient food systems is to be successful. And there's more detail in the report, some more facts and figures, and some more uh, potential guidance. Um, this report, once again, is called a multi-billion dollar opportunity, repurposing agricultural support to transform food systems. It is published by the United Nations, Food and Agricultural Organizations of the United Nations, and the United Nations Environment Program. And while the UN has done some good um, investigating and studying of the issue, the UN has not consistently been kind of following its own guidance here and inviting the right stakeholders to take part in making sure those groups and individuals have a part in the broader discussions. Next up is a piece by Leila Nargi, published at thecounter.org. The UN is holding a summit on building a sustainable future for food and ag. Why are so many people upset about it? On September 23, the United Nations will hold the first of its kind Food Systems Summit in New York City, conceived to help launch a, quote, decade of action in which countries commit themselves in earnest to the organization's 17 Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. The summit is meant to design, quote, bold new actions to deliver progress on all 17 SDGs, ranging from ending poverty and hunger to transitioning to clean energy and responsible consumption, quote, each of which relies to some degree on healthier, more sustainable and equitable food systems, according to Summit website. Rosters of experts were selected for the summit's advisory and scientific committees, and in late July, a pre-summit was held in Rome to drum up enthusiasm for the presumptive main event. The summit stated goals which include urgent transitioning to more sustainable and equitable food systems seem to line tidally up with the stated goals of many sustainability-focused nonprofits and advocacy organizations. So why did it set off bitter protests, fiery op-eds criticizing the methodology and intentions of summit organizers, and high-profile summit withdrawals from the invited stakeholders? For example, the pre-summit sparked an estimated 9,000 people to participate in a three-day, mostly online protest 
called the Counter-Mobilization to Transform Corporate Food Systems. The protest kicked off with an eight-hour rally, then morphed into a series of dialogues with people who felt their voices had been left out of the official proceedings. Thousands of farmers, producers, and food activists came together to discuss community-driven solutions to the intersecting crises currently plaguing food nutrition and health. These stakeholders say they have extensive boots-on-the-ground knowledge and experience and should have been included in the UN's dialogue. At the pre-summit, global leaders declared intentions to forge an international roadmap for the future of agriculture on a rapidly changing planet. They were, quote, expected to step up and launch bold new actions, solutions, partnerships, and strategies to vastly improve food and ag systems. That's where the decisions were made, explained Professor Molly Anderson about the decision to protest the pre-summit. The cake was baked at the pre-summit, and the summit will be the celebration where they eat the cake. Anderson is Academic Director of Food Studies at Middlebury College in Vermont. She's also a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, IPES-FOOD, which announced it was withdrawing from September's summit alongside a boycott by scientists, researchers, and academics, citing opaque methods of decision-making and a favoring of tech-heavy, corporate-centric private sector voices. These flaws put the summit at risk of, quote, being captured by a narrow set of interests, the group wrote in a statement. Said Sylvia Malari, global chairperson for the People's Coalition on Food Sovereignty, a civil society initiative representing the interests of small food producers, quote, It was important to take the position that if the UN cannot reorient itself into placing the interests of people over profits, we would have a counter-summit and make our intervention from the outside. Over and over, the summit has been criticized for its close links to private sector corporate actors seeking to boost industrial agriculture. Quote, they want digitalization and gene editing and precision agriculture, which won't help the poorest and hungriest people in the world very much and will make the gap between the very poor and hungry and the wealthy even wider than it is now. On the other hand, the Civil Society and Indigenous Peoples Mechanism, CSM, which organized the pre-summit protest, favors, quote, solutions that are resilient, community-driven, and that impact the most vulnerable, said Kiana Mickey, a member of the CSM Coordination Committee and former director of New York City nonprofit Just Food. The summit website is now replete with mentions of civil society, promising a broad array of youth, smallholder farmers, indigenous peoples, and researchers, along with the representatives from the private sector, policy leaders, and ministers of agriculture, environment, health, and finance. Mickey said this language came in late in the game. However, and that it's mostly lip service meant to make the organization's efforts sound like they had more global grassroots involvement rather than promoting just a corporate agenda. IPES Foods statement alleges that organizations representing the private sector, such as the World Economic Forum, aka Davos, widely seen as a mechanism that benefits the wealthy global elite, were allowed to frame the agenda from the outset. Mickey said their goal was to focus on investment-friendly solutions and that civil society was, quote, invited to come to a table that had already been set. CSM and a long list of supporters, including UN Special Rapporteurs, have claimed that the way various invitees were picked was dubious. Quote, There was no transparency about how they were selected, said Anderson about the summit's scientific group, 
which skews heavy on economists over agriculture experts. Also of concern to the CSM was the fact that Agnes Kalabata was named special envoy to the summit. The former Rwandan Minister of Agriculture and Animal Resources, Kalabata is also known for her past presidency of the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA, hailed as salvation for some Asian countries when they were in the throes of famine in the 1960s and 70s. The Green Revolution tilted food production heavily towards the industrial chemical model, which some argue is ecologically ruinous and runs counter to the UN's own proposed SDGs. Anderson and members of CSM also take issue with what they see as as controversial corporate and financial participants, such as representatives of agrochemical and biotech trade organization CropLife International and the World Bank, the latter an actor in what Anderson and her co-authors called in a working paper the, quote, coalescing of a market-based vision of food governance holding the line against the food sovereignty movement. Other CSM complaints include the organizers' initial failure to center discussions about human rights for both workers and eaters, and its unwillingness to show openness to sustainable agroecology solutions that are backed by science. These include methodologies such as integrated pest management that would limit chemical inputs, move food systems away from their dependence on industrial agriculture, and rely much more heavily on the traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples. Jordan Treacle, Programs and Policy Coordinator for the National Family Farm Coalition, said the upcoming summit follows an emerging trend of multi-stakeholderism, an approach where the UN brings to the table corporations, governments, and sometimes farmers, and says, let's have an important policy discussion without acknowledging or balancing the different hierarchies. When participation of civil society, which is generally considered to encompass NGOs and other groups that hold institutions to account, and speak on behalf of marginalized populations, has been welcomed into summit-related events, it was, quote, purely symbolic, Treacle said. The way he and other members of CSM see it, in such a forum, their voices and concerns are not adequately heard or taken into account. We are the rights holders to keep this system going, and we shouldn't be in the same room as multinational corporation that's extracting value from labor and trashing the environment, Treacle said. In early September, the U.S. government hosted a listening session to solicit ideas about food systems and food security in advance of the U.N. summit. It was attended by Richard McCarthy, former executive director of Slow Food USA, who discussed the importance of farmers' markets. At the listening session, although some civil society organizations were in attendance, they chose not to participate in the session. McCarthy feels this was the wrong move. He said that in doing so, the grassroots ceded ground to the corporate voices, which, quote, were heard and were the loudest. McCarthy wrote in an email, The revolution is shaped by those who show up. We need voices on the outside, voices on the inside, and voices that know how to jump between. For her part, Mickey wishes the UN had worked from the get-go to take CSM's concerns to heart to ensure a summit with, quote, genuine engagement and amplification of innovative solutions to the persistent issues in our food system, like hunger and impacts of climate change. Food security is such a vitally important, life-altering issue in the world today with so many people in so many places in poorer countries and in wealthier countries 
food insecure um, due to the policies of governments that are out there and where they choose to place their support. Um, it's all about the power, the power that entities have, and especially the power that uh, global corporate entities have um, that come with their with their wealth. And it is incredibly difficult to challenge that power because power wants to, in many ways, maintain the status quo, in other ways to attract more power for itself in order for it to control more of the political decision-making, the economic decision-making, and the social decision-making, and to further enrich itself in systems that reward via wealth those people who have power it's a it's a circle that is extremely difficult to break power brings wealth wealth fosters more power etc so working outside first recognizing those structures and those challenges and where that power is and then building and working outside of that power structure is one of the major ways we're going to be able to build power on our own on our own terms and negate the power of those currently powerful entities and really do what's best for the people and not what is necessarily best for the pocketbooks comes back to responsibility comes back to irresponsible ejaculations and that'll wrap up this episode of you can't be neutral remember you can follow on twitter at ycb neutral you can check out all the back episodes at you can't be neutral.com and you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24 7 at movingtrainradio.com and now a moment of zin Thanks for listening. Rich men have the power, so they'd like you to believe. Rich men, they know better. Rich men, they achieve. Us poor folk, well, we're worthless. Good for nothing but the blame. Numbers on their spreadsheets. Pawns within their game. But what if we stopped playing? If we didn't feed their greed? If we all stopped buying what we want and only what we need? Then we all went to the bank and drew our money out and said en masse, let's phone in sick next week and have a month in bed. The rich would soon stop laughing, see they'd lose and wonder how. And as one, we all could ask them, where's the fucking power now? <laughs>